me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12 this morning. Mark chapter 12. Have you ever considered why you actually come to church? What is your motivation behind coming? What what motivates you to give to God? What motivates you to do things for other people? One of the tendencies for us who have been Christians for a long time is that we can forget what the purpose is in what we do. And things as simple as going to church or giving to God or even singing, they can uh, lose their purpose for us. We can forget what, what the purpose is. And as a result, we can replace the right purpose that is to glorify God, ultimately, with a wrong purpose, and that is to be seen by other people, among another, a number of other things. And we can start to participate in services in order that people will see us, or in order that people will recognize us, or give us recognition, or give us praise or honor. When it comes to questions about motivation, we, we don't usually like to think about them. We don't like to think about our own heart because we we recognize that in general there there is some ugliness there there is some some sin and and uh, much of it remains hidden and so we don't like to think about our our deepest and darkest of motives we like to uh, ignore those types of things but today I think this passage will help shed some light on the deepest and uh, perhaps the darkest recesses of our hearts and uh, where our motives lie. And in doing so, I think it will help us to show where we ought to be with regard to our motives when it comes to worship, when it comes to doing things for God, and really what is most important. Mark chapter 12, we'll finish the chapter today, verses 35 through 44. Let me begin reading with verse 35. And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Although Jesus was generally rejected by the religious leaders, he was generally accepted by the common people. 
uh, although that's not the case and, and that's not the true of, of every single person in those groups, the religious leaders, not all of them rejected God, Jesus and not all the common people accepted him. But that's generally, uh, if you look at the broad stroke of things, that's how it was. And, and their rejection, the religious leaders' rejection of Jesus was seen in their, uh, in their superficial service. You understand what I mean by that, that they're doing it to be seen by people. And we'll, we'll see that as we, as we go through this passage. At the end of verse 34, which is where we finished last week, we saw that no one would dare ask him another question. They had been uh, bringing these questions to him one by one. You remember we're at Tuesday of the, the week of his suffering, the final week of his life, and uh, and as he enters the temple on that Tuesday morning, they, they come to him with the question. It begins in chapter 11, verse 27. They say, By whose authority do you, Jesus of Nazareth, do these things? That is, all these healings, casting out uh, the money changers from the temple. Why are you doing all these things? Who gives you the right to do these things? Of course, Jesus responds to their trapping sort of question with a question back on them. And then he follows that in chapter 12 with a parable of the vineyard and the vineyard owner who uh, sends servants one after another to to collect what was due to him. And these servants would would beat these... or These uh, vineyard workers would beat the servants. And then eventually the owner sends his, his very own son and they kill his son, which really was a prediction of what was going to happen to Jesus Christ. He was showing these religious leaders that, listen, you're not about finding out what the truth is. You're not trying to figure out what is most important. You're just trying to accomplish your own purpose. And you don't accept me as God's Son. And as a result, it's going to lead to my death. They come back with more questions. If you're so close to God, Jesus Christ, then, then, then should we pay taxes to this pagan God-hater, this this governor of ours, should we really pay taxes to him? And uh, Jesus, of course, avoids the trap that they're trying to set there. And then again, if you know so much about the Bible, then what is life after death going to be like? You remember the Sadducees come with this question. There, there can't be resurrection uh, of life. There's no way this, this could happen. They bring up the silly example of of a, uh, a husband dying and uh, and leaving a wife who marries six different uh, brothers of his after each one of them dies and then the question comes who is she going to be married to in after the resurrection Jesus avoids all this and really at the center of all these questions what we find is that Mark is trying to show us that this is Jesus the Christ that is Jesus the Messiah that's what Christ means he's saying who is this Jesus is he really the Messiah because these religious leaders reject him as this Messiah. They reject him as God's son. They were trying to prove that he was not indeed God's son. So now, after verse 34, they, they fail to ask him any more questions. They, they don't dare to ask him any more questions because they are the ones who look foolish when they were expecting Jesus to look foolish. So now Jesus goes on the offensive in verses 35 through 37. And he shows that the leaders ultimately reject Jesus as the Messiah. He points them back to their own scriptures which they accepted 
and he shows them that he really is the the Messiah. Verse 35 reads, And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? He is the son of man. You see that at the end of verse 35, the son of David. He literally comes from the line of David. And uh, we see in verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. And so in what sense is he his son is the question that Jesus lays before him. To be a son of a person, in this case a king, King David, meant that the son was dependent upon the father. And so Jesus is saying, if I am merely a son, if I am merely a human, then how is it that I am David's Lord? They, they don't accept Jesus as Lord. They don't accept Jesus as God's Son. But they did accept that, that, as we're going to see here in verse 36, that this passage here that they're referring back, that Jesus is referring back to, comes from Psalm chapter 110. And this passage is actually referring to the Messiah. And, uh, in fact, Matthew helps give greater detail. He, 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 he tells us that Jesus actually asked the question of, of the people. He says, who is this Messiah? Whose son is he? And they replied to him, the Messiah is David's son. So what Jesus is trying to do is to help them put the picture together. See, for us, we recognize, for the most part, that Jesus is both son, God's son, and, and uh, Mary's son, in the, in the sense that he is both divine and human. But they didn't put that together in their understanding of the Old Testament, and Jesus is helping them to do that based on this text in Psalm 110. So how do the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David when David himself says that the Messiah is more than that? Look at verse 36. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So Jesus takes what they know to be true, that this Messiah will be David's son, and he shows them that he's more than just the son of David. Turn back to Psalm chapter 110, where this passage is cited, or from which this passage is cited. Psalm chapter 110. Because they would have understood this chapter in the Psalms, to be referring to the Messiah. They would not have rejected that. That's what Jesus was claiming, that this is referring to the Messiah, and they would have agreed. But only that this Messiah was a man in some way. He was simply a man in that he would redeem the people Israel. But he was showing them, Jesus was, that in fact, he was more than that. He was more than just a man. Look at chapter 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the quotation that Jesus is giving us here in Mark chapter 12. But what I want you to notice is the letters that are used in the two Lords there at the beginning of the verse. You notice in the first Lord, all the letters are capitalized. In the second Lord, only the first letter is capitalized. And as I've said before, what that means is that when all of the letters are capitalized there in the Old Testament, that is the English translation, the way of showing us that that's referring to the covenant name of God, that is Yahweh, 
or as, as we know it, Jehovah, the Lord, that is God the Father. So the Lord says to my Lord, it's not as if he's talking to himself here, he's speaking to someone else. And this is David writing the psalm. You see that in the inscription right below your, your chapter. It says, a psalm of whom? David. So David is saying that the Lord God, Lord God the Father, says to my, David's, Lord. And what does he say? Chapter or Verse 1 says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. So the first Lord is referring to God, obviously. The second Lord is referring to this, this promised Redeemer that would come through David's line. And we know that, 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 that this Lord that David is talking about is not simply just another person or someone, someone else down the road. This is his descendant because in first Sam, or Second Samuel chapter 7, we find that, that this sort of promise is, comes through, uh, through God to David. That, that through your descendant, David, this child of yours, this descendant of yours will crush the head of the serpent. It will, be, it will come through you, this Redeemer. So now David's talking about that Redeemer in chapter 110, verse 1, and he's saying that this son of mine is actually my Lord. And so here's the question. Go back to Mark chapter 12, because we'll, we'll now, I think, be able to understand a little bit more clearly what Jesus is, is trying to teach them. Look at chapter 12, and let's read verse 35 to 37 with, our, with this understanding in mind. And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Okay, This is the part where they all agreed. The Messiah is the son of David. Now Jesus takes it a step further, verse 36. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, showing that this comes from the David that you know, the David that you have heard of, the, the David that you honor, and he said it, on the basis of the, the power, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he said. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? Jesus here is claiming his deity. He's saying, as Messiah, as son of David, I am more than simply a human. And really, after he asked this question, they had no reply. There was no way that they could answer this question. Is the Messiah simply the son of David, or is he Lord of David? Why else would David call his descendant Lord unless uh, this descendant was greater than him? You know, with descendants, we, we understand this. Uh, those of us who are parents, the children are dependent upon us. And even if we think about it, we are dependent upon our ancestors, even people we don't even know, people from our past. We are dependent on them in the sense that without them, we wouldn't exist. And so what Jesus is saying is, how could David have someone who is his descendant, who is dependent on him in some way, how could David call that person his, his Lord? when David should be the Lord over that descendant, you see? And as, as you can guess, these people rejected it. The, re, the religious leaders rejected this God-man. And Mark records an example for us of this rejection, of the type of rejection that they give. 
in verses 38 through 40. Their rejection is seen in their superficial service. It's seen in a lot of ways, but here in verses 38 through 40, we see their rejection uh, with their superficial service. Uh, the main command here is in verse 38. Uh, it says, In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes. And then he explains what they do. Beware of the scribes. Beware of these scribes who are trying to be all showy. These flamboyant scribes who are just looking for people to see them. And notice what happens to them at the end of verse 40. These will receive greater condemnation. He's teaching the people that they need to be careful with these type of leaders. The ones who are out just to be seen by other people you're going to find that that they are going to receive greater condemnation. So what makes them so showy? What's so, what makes them draw attention to their, themselves? Jesus gives a list of the things that they do in verse 38. Beware of the scribes who first like to walk around in long robes. These were long fringed robes that would reach near the ground. And it was a sign of wealth and nobility, of, of power, of position. But not only that, would they wear these robes to show their position, but they, verse, at the end of verse 38, they like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They would walk through the most crowded of areas and, and demand that people would give them the respect that they thought they deserved, the greetings that they thought that they deserved. It would be like you wearing your graduation robe to Walmart and making people call you master or something. Uh, shows the flamboyance of their nature, of the fact that they want to, to, to have attention drawn to them. And then we see in verse 39, they like the chief seats in the synagogues. The chief seats were up near the front where the distinguished teachers would, would be seated and they wanted to be seated, seated up near them. And then at the end of verse 39, we see that they like places of honor at banquets which was to the right or the left of the host. That they were their special guests. And James chapter 2, verses 1-4 through four, warns us about this sort of, of desire and about treating people uh, differently because of, of their status. But not only that, they also, uh, we see uh, in the middle of verse 40, they offer long prayers. They offer long prayers. Now, what we need to understand is that long prayers are not inherently evil. Turn to Mark chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew helps give a fuller description of of why these prayers are not accept these types of prayers are not accepted before God, not because of the length of them, but because of the motive behind them. Look at Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 6. Verses 5 through 7. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. You see the same sort of motive that we're going to see in Mark chapter 12. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard 
for their many words. So we see a couple of, things, a couple of reasons why these prayers are not accepted. The end of verse 5 or the middle of verse 5 says that they do it in order to be seen by men. Verse 7, they do it. They, they participate in meaningless repetition or vain babblings just as the Gentiles, the, the God-haters do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. This uh, meaningless repetition in verse 7 was, was something that they mimicked from the pagan uh, pagan worshipers, pagan god worshipers. They would use a long list of pagan god names and, and they thought if they listed as many as they could that eventually one of them would click and they would get what they wanted, hoping that this repetition would, would incite some sort of help from these false gods. It doesn't mean, as Jesus says, go into your room and, and, and do this in secret so that your Heavenly Father can hear you. It doesn't mean that all prayer has to be done in secret. Certainly Jesus even prays in public. But the purpose behind it must be not to make a show. It must not be in order to be pleasing before people or to be seen by people or for people to, to, to see you as something special, but in order for God to, uh, to be honored in it. So there's nothing inherently wrong with long prayers uh, or long public prayers even, only with long public prayers that are done for the wrong purpose. In fact, it could be a short one done for the wrong purpose with the wrong motive, filled with meaningless verbiage in order to impress the hearers instead of to talk to God. Back to Mark chapter 12. We'll see why these actions are so hypocritical, or, or I'm sorry, why, why they're so... Uh, showy, show, so flamboyant and unacceptable before God. We see part of the action behind what they're doing. Verse 40, who devour widows' houses. The reason that they are not accepted by God is because these people are hypocritical. They do all this show like they are something special before God when they're at the same time devouring widows' houses. Scribes were forbidden to receive payment for their teaching. So you can imagine that they either had to support themselves with another job other than their, their work as scribes or through uh, some sort of support that they could get from some people. They had to be dependent upon gifts. And so such a situation could cause them to be easily tempted to try to pursue people who were vulnerable. And uh, those of you who were in the service industry or are in the service industry probably understand this sort of temptation. If you are dependent upon tips for a living, uh, you understand that, that there is a temptation there in that sort of business to want to do some unethical means in order to get more money because that's your, your sustenance in a way. When I worked at the airport, I used to push uh, elderly people from one gate to the other in a wheelchair, that is, not just uh, push them, but... Um, and we we made less than minimum wage, but with the understanding that we would get tips for for doing this service, and we would get between a hundred and three hundred dollars in tips a week. And basically, the only rule that we had, uh, the main rule that we had, was was that we could not solicit tips. So we couldn't stand around with our hands in our pockets, or or you know, do the little symbol here to the people to make sure that they know they need to give give us tips. 
Um, but but if people gave us tips, it was not there was nothing unethical about that. So we we were allowed to accept them. We just weren't allowed to solicit them. Now, I wasn't as good as uh, some some of the other people as far as the amount of money that I brought in. Um, but but there were some really good fellow employees of mine who were especially good at bilking people out of their money. They would uh, they would obviously. Uh, go out of their way to to be especially convincing to these people, um, superficially uh, uh, wanting to find out about what was going on in their lives. And then when they would get there, they would go above and beyond, not in order to serve them, but 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 in order that these people would know that they need to give a tip and so on. They'd sweet talk them the whole way to the gate. They'd help them out of their chair. And then they would stand around and wait until they finally got the point. Until um, so they'd reach into their wallet or purse and give them money. And, and they probably justified it by thinking, you know what? I'm doing a service for them, so in that way I, I deserve the tip that they should give to me. And I think that's what's going on here with these devouring widows' houses. It probably wasn't as egregious as they go into a widow's house and just start stealing everything and, and taking everything away from them as as the term sounds, but it was probably more like they felt like they were providing a service for these widows by, uh, the scribes were the ones, by the way, who would write up their estate terms and they would determine, they would help determine where all their money would go when the when their husband died. And so probably through some underhanded counseling or some unethical procedures, they would trick the widows into giving them a portion of that money uh, because of their service for God or because of their service to them. And Jesus calls it something pretty uh, drastic. He calls it, verse 40, devouring their houses. And notice their motive behind it, behind all of these things that they're doing. I think this is a good summary. In the middle of the verse, middle of verse 40, it says, and for appearances sake. Their greatest desire is not to be honoring to God, to do what's best for God's kingdom and God's glory, but it is for appearance, so that people will recognize and see them and give them the praise that they want. So what we see here in the first part of this passage is that, in general, the religious leaders reject Jesus. They reject Him as the Messiah, as we saw in the first couple of verses. And we see an example of that in verses 38 through 40 with their superficial service. But then we see in the second part of this passage that in general, the common people accept Jesus. Look at the end of verse 37. And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. This is kind of a summary of, of the way that the common people responded to. They probably enjoyed seeing the religious leaders finally put in their place the way that Jesus would do to them. And we should not be as foolish to think that all of this crowd were believers. That certainly is not the case. But in general, that's why I use those ter that term, in general, they, they did accept Christ, unlike the religious leaders. And we see an example of their acceptance of Christ, the common people's acceptance, in verses 41 through 44. In verse 41, says that he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large 
sums. This took place in the temple treasury, which was located inside the court of the women. The court of the women was located just inside the court of the Gentiles, and basically these courts were designed to show the people how far they could actually go. So the Gentiles could go only as far as the court of the Gentiles. The women could go only as far as the court of the women. The, the uh, Jewish men were allowed to go further inside the temple. And so this treasury was actually held inside the, the court of the women. And, and inside this treasury were thir- 13 large um, receptacles that, would receive, that they would use to receive gifts from people or offerings, you could say. They, were, uh, they had mouths shaped like trumpets, and they were designed for all sorts of different purposes. They had the temple tax, and they had uh, voluntary giving and all sorts of other things. And Jesus sits down opposite the treasury, and notice what he's trying to do. It says, he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. He wasn't examining how much necessarily, although that was part of it. He was examining how. He was concerned about the extent of the gift. What's involved in the way that this gift is given? And he noticed that many rich people, at the end of the verse, were putting in large sums of money. And then this poor widow comes along and she gives a very small sum of money. Mark helps us to understand what, how small it is in verse 42. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which amount to a cent. Now this cent is not the same as our cent. Um, so, so don't think it's worth a penny here. It's actually um, a Roman cent. And a Roman cent was worth one-sixty-fourth of a denarius. That's the same as uh, two copper coins. It's worth a denarius. A denarius was basically one day's worth of work. And so uh, this one-sixty-fourth of that, this cent, this two small copper coins that she puts in, is basically the equivalent in our day of about $2.50. But what was amazing was not the amount that she put in, or the, the, the little amount that she put in, but it, what was amazing was her sacrifice in in putting this amount in. And Jesus evaluates her giving. Remember, he's doing this to see how the people are giving, and he notices how she gives. And what he notices in verse 43 is that she gives sacrificially. Verse 43, Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Now, if we're talking about the amount... She certainly did not put in more. So what standard is Jesus using? How could Jesus say that she, giving only $2.50, is giving more than these other people who are giving perhaps hundreds of dollars? How could that be possible? What is he evaluating? What's the basis of his evaluation? Verse 44. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned. All she had to live on. He, he highlights for us the sacrifice that is involved. Put in all she owned. All she had to live on. He repeats it there so that we can understand the emphasis that he's making. It is a great sacrifice for her to give this amount to the treasury. For them, they were giving out of their surplus or out of their leftovers. It, was, it wasn't hurting them at all. It didn't cost them hardly anything to, to put in this amount of money, even though it was more monetarily. 
than what she had given. It didn't mean a whole lot to them. She gave out of her poverty. They gave out of their surplus. She probably wasn't even sure where the next meal was coming from. She put her grocery money into the offering. That was it. She she trusted that God was going to take care of her. And it, and it was an offering that was acceptable by Christ because it was an offering that was sacrificial. You see, it's not the quantity that God is concerned about primarily. God is primarily concerned about the quality of the gift. He's concerned about the quality of the gift. And we understand this when we receive gifts at Christmas time or, or at our birthdays or other times of the year. We, we appreciate the quality gifts rather than the, the, the gifts that may cost more. All right, which, which gift did you appreciate most this Christmas? Was it, was it the one that, that was picked up at Walgreens and, and it was just a little thing on the way out the door? They decided to throw that in the cash register and, and put that in your and wrap it up and give it to you? Or was it the one that you received from your daughter or granddaughter or niece or nephew that, that they took hours to color and, and, and they didn't have a lot to offer? But, but they worked on it very hard. We, we understand this when it comes to our own life, but we don't see it as much when it comes to our own giving. We think that God is going to be ex- God's going to be accepting our gift based on the amount or the percentage that we give. But that's not the primary thing that God is looking for. God's looking for, did this actually cost you anything? Did, did it require for you to make a sacrifice? Or is this just giving out of your, like these rich people, giving out of your surplus, out of your leftovers? Oh, I can give that. That's not a big deal. For Jesus, giving is not measured by how much is given, but how much is left. How much is left? Jesus is looking for sacrifice, the gift that costs us the most. He he knew that she gave out of the totality of her possessions. He knew because he was the Messiah, the Son of God. I mean, how could Jesus really evaluate her unless he was the Messiah? How could he have known that she was a widow, for one? How could he have known that she gave exactly two small copper coins? How could she have known that she had nothing left if he was not the Messiah? And this really helps us point back to what the point of the whole passage is, is that we need to accept Jesus Christ for who He is. And part of that acceptance is the way that we respond to Him. Is it going to be in superficial service? That's the way we respond if we reject Jesus Christ as Messiah. Or is it going to be in sacrificial service? So, for us, we need to give without seeking the approval of people. We shouldn't be showy about our giving. We shouldn't look for other people to see what we're doing. And by the way, I think this has an application for more than just our giving, right? God demands that we do more for Him than simply put money in the offering plate. He demands that we give Him our lives. And that's why we had these other examples here in verses 38 through 40 where the not only are these religious leaders and these rich people giving money, but they're also going around parading their greatness. What is the purpose that you do everything that you do at this church or at your home? Is it 
so that people can see you? Will, will you not participate in some act of service if no one were to find out about it? Because what God is saying is He wants your sacrifice. That's what He wants. He wants something that, that comes from your heart. Not something that you can just, oh yeah, well I'll do that because I know I'm going to get recognition for it, so I'd be happy to do that. It's it's part of trusting God and recognizing that He exists and He will reward us in His timing. But ultimately, even if He doesn't, it doesn't matter because He's given us so much. I mean, that, that the rewards that we are promised in the future, those are great. That's like icing on the cake. But that's not the most important thing. We've already been forgiven such a, such a, a enormous debt of sin, and, and so it's the least that we can do. And that's the attitude I think that this widow had. She was willing to give it all because she recognized who was most important in her life. Jesus is a servant and a minister, not a militant and triumphant king here in his first coming. And therefore, we should be as well. We should not serve to be seen and praised by people. That should not be our motive. And when we give, we should give to God until we feel it both in our monetary giving and in our service to Him. We should give until we feel it, until it, until it causes us to, to recognize that, that this is more than just my leftovers. We shouldn't compare ourselves to other people and say, well, they're not giving as much as I'm giving. That's not the point. The point is how much we are sacrificing before God. This account really functions as a transition from the passion narrative in chapters 14 and 15, or two of the Passion Narratives in 14 and 15, Jesus concludes His earthly ministry here, uh, his, at least His public ministry. Now the rest of His teaching is going to happen in private with His disciples. And this leads to His final rejection that we'll read about in chapters 14 and 15. I think I want to leave, uh, I want to leave you to one final application, that is, um, or one final point, and that is Jesus valued the widow's giving so much uh, more because she gave out of her entire livelihood, which really was a taste of what Jesus would do himself. You remember what Paul wrote in Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine, that, that Jesus was willing to give his life. He was willing to give out of he was giving willing to give to the point where it hurts, where he could feel it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8:9, "You know the grace of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, excuse me, for though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty could become rich." Christ gave himself for you. How could we not give ourselves to him? Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thankful for the lesson that we can learn through Him. He was not just merely a man. He was not just a, a great man to come along and, and really be better than all the, the ones prior to Him and, and after Him, but He was more than that. He was and is the Son of You. He is the Messiah, the Promised One. He was... Uh, looked forward to by David 
his ancestor David himself called him Lord. And we do as well. We bow our knee before him and we look forward to the day that is recounted in Philippians when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They all will recognize that that He is great and there is no other. Lord, may we not wait until that day to bow the knee because there will be unbelievers on that day who will be forced to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and to claim that He is Lord even though they defiantly oppose Him. We don't want to wait until that day. We want to claim and live for Him as Lord now. And part of that, as we have learned, is that we must give not in order to be seen by people, not to be superficial, but to do it out of our heart in a way that shows that we are doing it with great sacrifice. And as Paul says in Romans 12, it is the very least that we can do. It is a reasonable service of worship for us to offer our bodies and our lives, our gifts as living sacrifices. We pray that you would be honored in our lives and that you would help us to uh, see our own sin and our own desire to be seen by people and, and for our own improper motives. Bring those to the surface so that we can repent of them turn from them, confess them before You, and see You change our lives so that we are doing things from our heart. We thank You for the example that we have in Jesus Christ, and we ask that You would help us to live for Him. Although He was rich, He became poor so that we, through His poverty, would become rich. Pray these things in His name. Amen.